This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Arts and Crafts edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon from Fusion in Miami, where Art Basel Miami Beach is happening right now. And we're going to talk about that and the crazy world of high-end contemporary art and all of the madness that is surrounding me right here. We will then bring it down a notch and talk about an art market for slightly more normal people, Etsy, which is branching out into the wholesale business. And we will talk about art in a posthumous sense. What has happened to the estate of Morris Sendak? There's a bit of a controversy going on right there. We will also, at the end, do our regular lightning numbers round. And this week, I'm going to tell you up front that my number is the amount of money that you guys, the Slate Money family, all of us, have managed to raise for Doctors Without Borders. I hope you're going to be impressed. It is a large number. I can tell you that right now. Anyway, I am joined by regular guest Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Felix. Hello. And Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist for Slate. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. So anyway, I am, as I say, in Miami. I was at Art Basel Miami Beach this week, looking at all of the booths and the art and the... You could smell the money and of course i was not really where the action is the action is all in the the parties there was a miley cyrus concert on wednesday i'm missing my favorite band on saturday there's a huge number of um parties and billionaires and celebrities and leonardo dicaprio apparently 
in about 27 different places at once. I saw him myself. What we're really seeing here in Miami is the celebrityfication and luxuryfication and and like moneyfication of a world which historically has not been this glamorous and it's a bit weird i have to say to see you know the glamour of a place like miami transferred to what was always a pretty sort of fusty art world so um, felix let me ask yeah. you a question i mean i'm i'm no expert on the art world so i'm just going to be basically interviewing you if you don't mind <laughs> um so first first of all like how rich do you have to be to buy art at that at that convention i mean it, it, you know what's the cheapest art and are there people that just come in and just look around or is it do you have to be invited is it like you know davos like tell us some more about it it is a little bit like davos in that there are the celebrities who mm-hmm. are, are and the celebrities come in sort of three flavors there are the actual celebrities like diddy or leonardo DiCaprio or, or miley cyrus who cl- is also by the way trying to sell herself as an artist rather than just a pop musician she makes actual actual art and mm. assemblages and photos and puts them on the wall and exhibits them and tries to sell them. So there's those celebrities. There's also the art collector celebrities. So Miami has its sort of king and queen of art collecting, the Don and Mira Rubel. They have their 50th anniversary show up right now. There's a bunch of other people like Perez. And, but you get a bunch of collectors coming in, you know, the Stevie Cohens and Dan Loeb, the big hedge fund managers. They come in with really deep sort of seven, eight-figure pockets to buy art. But you don't need to have that much money. And you don't in, indeed really have to have any money at all. There's a bunch of satellite fairs. There's about 12 different satellite fairs, some of which are free to get into. Um, art Basel itself, I think, costs about 45 bucks to get into, but that's just a crowd control mechanism, really. They're expecting 75,000 people to come along, and most of those people are not going to buy any art. If you want to buy art, you can buy multiples, you can buy you know, works on paper for a few hundred bucks, especially at some of the satellite fairs. But the press, of course, is much more interested in the big ticket items, which, you know, four million for this, eight million for that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I looked at the graph of like the art sales over time and they seem to basically track... Uh, big money. You know, they basically yeah. track the stock market. There's a dip after 2007. But they've gotten much, much, much bigger in the last 20 years. The stock market is back to its sort of record highs right now. But the contemporary art market, at least, is even hotter than it was before the crisis. You know, we had a single sale at Christie's um, just a couple of weeks ago, which realized $850 million. It's insane, the amounts of money which are changing hands right now. There's sort of an inequality story you can get into here. Uh, I like to think of high-end art as sort of trading cards for billionaires, right? I mean, it's all about just them swapping these extremely expensive paintings and gleaning prestige from them. A little while back, a hedge fund billionaire named Paul Singer, he made a comment that the raging prices for uh, houses in the Hamptons and high-end art were, quote, the leading edge of hyperinflation, that this market was so crazy that clearly this was the very beginning of, of inflation that normal you know, middle-class families were going to see, which is kind of absurd. But there probably is actually inflation 
going on in these art markets because there are billionaires coming from Russia, from China. Well, it's not really inflation, Jordan. It's more speculation. What you have is art is an asset class. So Jim Stewart at the New York Times wrote a really kind of silly piece about this a week ago. The, you know, the people are treating art in a speculative asset classy kind of way and they're marking it to market and they're saying, you know, I have some percentage of my net worth in art and it's worth this and then it's gone up in value over time and I'm buying art which I think is going to appreciate in value in future. And I remember talking to one famous art collector called Adam Lindemann once and I asked him, well, you know, you're an art lover and you only buy art that you love, but what's the most money that you would ever spend on a work of art, if you knew that it would have no resale value, if you knew that, you know, all you could do is just enjoy it and love it, but you could never sell it and it would never go up in value. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, you know, of course, I would never buy a work of art like that. So, you know, people claim to be, you know, only buying the stuff they love. But there really is a lot of feverish speculation in this market, which really does remind me of the 1990s dot-com bubble. I agree with you that the fact that it's being treated as an asset is just one more place to put your money and you've art hedge funds and whatnot. But I, in the when I say inflation, I mean the classic sense of more money chasing fewer of the same number of goods. You, you have more of this international money from China, from Russia. Now celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio are getting attracted to Art Basel coming in to throw their money into this market where they're being attracted. So I think... Yes, I, but, but, but that, the way you're wrong is that there's a fixed supply. There is not a fixed supply. There is a limitless supply. There is, to all intents and purposes, an infinite number of artists making art. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we talk about Etsy. There's really no limit to the number of artists out there and the number of works of art out there. So the only... But there is a set number of artists that people want to buy. It's sort of this, you know... It's not set at all, no. I mean, the whole point of the gallery system is that, you know, the galleries are creating new artists all the time. The hottest, you know, art at any given point in time over the past few years has always been from like brand new names that no one had ever heard of a couple of years previous. So I have a quick question that goes back to the idea of art as a commodity in your portfolio. I guess my question is, the people who are buying this high-end art, are they enjoying it in their homes? Are they putting it in museums? I mean, or are they just literally stashing it somewhere in some like storage center and putting it on their portfolio? And if- a, a lot of it lives in, in the Geneva Freeport in Switzerland. There's a sort of, you know, duty-free zone in Switzerland where billions and billions of dollars worth of art is stored. Most big-name art collectors, you know, for all that they might have eight different houses, don't have nearly enough wall space to exhibit all of the stuff that they own. So they will have some small fraction of their collection, you know, available for their viewing pleasure at any given time. But most of it is going to be in storage. Hmm. So, so, you know, the joke here to me about all this is that even though that art is being treated as an asset class, perhaps more so now than ever, traditionally it has not been a very good asset class. It's been a very bad investment. Even the art that appreciates most doesn't outperform the stock market by all that much. Right, Felix? Well, it's not an investment. Let's be very absolutely clear about this. There's this term of art in the in the investment world called SWAG, which stands for silver, wine, art, gold. And what that is, <laughs> is it's assets which have no cash flow associated with them, which have no real intrinsic value, which you can't sort of do any kind of discounted cash flow analysis to work out what they're worth. It's just worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. And those are not assets, really. They're just trophies. And what's happening in the art world is it's becoming even more like an arm of the luxury goods market. 
I mean, Kathy, you were asking how much you can get away with paying at the low end for art. And the answer is a lot less than you would pay for an Hermes handbag. Mm. And there's been a big overlap between the, you know, how much would you pay for art? How much would you pay for a handbag? How much would you pay for a suit? How much would you pay for any kind of luxury good out there? Right. And I would say that at the sort of extreme end, you have people who would buy art. And tell me if I'm wrong about this. I'm just guessing. They'd buy art and then immediately put the art in the museum so that they could have sort of their name attached to the fact that they're offering it into the museum. So it's more like just bragging rights. No, yeah, no. I no? mean, people, one, one of the trendy things to do right now is to set up your own museum, mm. you know, and putting put your name on the outside of your museum. So the Broad Collection in LA is opening up and that's the latest prime example. But no, like the hottest artists, you always get a sort of waiting list. There's a long line of people who want to buy the art of the hottest artists of the moment. If you're, you know, Oscar Murillo or Julie Moretu or someone like that. And so the way that the galleries pick and choose who they're going to sell to and who they're not going to sell to is they try and sell to the people who promise that they will donate to a museum in the future. But those promises are not worth very much and are often broken. And oftentimes you just see those things getting flipped and sold at auction you know, six months later. Also, there is actually a financial interest in putting your work in a museum for a while, at least lending it, because that helps it accrue value. If your painting has been shown at MoMA or wherever, it'll go up at auction later on. Well, yeah, again, it's very easy to overstate that, Jordan. I mean, and it's actually much, much harder than you might think to lend a piece of art to MoMA and have it appear on MoMA's wall. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying they're, yeah, they snap their fingers and do it, but if you can, it's not a bad way to add a little bit right, of cluster. As I, say, as I say, that doesn't, like, it's, it, you can't really talk about that as though it's a thing which happens because it really isn't a thing which happens. Well, um, it's their money, there are very I guess. Few, there are very few works of art in museums which are not owned by that museum or pledged to that museum. And even when it is... The added extra value of the provenance, you know, people love to talk about it, but no one ever really manages to quantify it. I, I'm not really convinced that the amount of money that adds is important. You know, big shows add value to an artist, but a lot of the um, artists who make lots of money as opposed to the artists who aren't worth lots of money, it's basically random to an outside observer. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, we had a piece by this woman called Sturtevant, which went for $3 million at the Christie's auction this season, and no one really knows why. No one was really particularly collecting her before, and now suddenly she's a hot artist, even though she's dead, which is quite uncommon now because people are, are more into the, sort of the young, hot living artists. I know none of it makes a huge amount of sense. <laughs> but the one thing which is clear to me is that although there's so much money floating around somewhere like Art Basel and people love to talk about the value of things going up and the value of things, you know, which which art has the most speculative value. The one thing which still makes people uncomfortable is the idea of artists themselves as sort of entrepreneurs who are making money. I mean, everyone knows that nowadays artists, especially hot artists, are making art especially for art fairs because art fairs are a very bad place to look at art and appreciate art and certain types of art sell quite well. But no one likes to talk about that and everyone still likes to pretend, especially the curators and many of the collectors, that the artists are just sort of sitting in their studios creating whatever their genius causes them to create and then the art you know without any eye on 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 the money aspect of things that's a perfect segue to the next topic <laughs> which is which is all part of my segue to etsy because as i say there are 
hundreds of thousands of artists out there and you only get the top you know 0.1% ever represented at a place like Art Basel and how did the rest of them make money Kathy well you know great question um and Etsy is one of the proposed solutions to that question and it it doesn't really talk too much about art at least when you read the mission statements of, of Etsy, Etsy is a platform that matchmakes between crafters and artists and the people who want to buy those homemade crafts and artworks. But it's really much more of a crafting site, at least in reputation. And what you have is a bunch of people who are selling their goods on Etsy. There's lots of different controversies around it, but I do want to mention that it's grown quite a bit. And last year's sales were $1.35 billion dollars. And that's 2013, right? So 2014 is going to be a lot bigger than that. Probably it is um, because people have more disposable income. And um, that's all the sales for all the goods. Etsy gets a percentage of that. But even 1% of that is $100 million. So that's that's a lot um, of money going into... Wait, 1% of a billion dollars is not $100 million. It's $10 million. Sorry. Excuse me. Oh, my God. I can't believe I did that math <laughs> wrong. That's $10 million, Thank you. But it, they get, I think they get 5%. So we're talking on the order of $50 million. So that's a lot of money going to crafts. The original CEO had this vision of sort of like single crafters working in their home, making homemade goods and sending the packages after they've been bought on the the platform um, directly to the buyers with like, you know, handwritten notes. Um, You know, I thought of you because I know you like green or something like that. It was very, very sweet and dear. That isn't what Etsy looks like anymore. At some point, it got sort of bigger and VCs got interested and they decided to really replace the CEO with the CTO uh, at the time, um, who was much more sort of thinking big. And he changed all sorts of things about Etsy, much to the chagrin of some of the big sellers on Etsy. And in particular, one thing he did was, you know, he allowed like larger groups of people to make things. He allowed other people to assemble things. He allowed designers to design on Etsy and then have other people make things. This is the same purity test, isn't it, that I was talking about in the art world, that there's that people love to think that there's something like pure about individuals just doing what they want to do and trying to, you know, present themselves to the world. But the minute that, you know, you start outsourcing any of it or that it looks a bit more like a business, people are like, oh, well, it's lost its soul because souls and commerce can't really coexist to it. Well, yeah, I think it's funny, actually. In, in some ways, the art world has done a better job getting over that at this point than maybe the crafts world. I mean, in the in the high-end art world, you've got guys like Jeff Koons or you've got Damien Hurst and, re- you know, really superstar artists who actually just have a whole workshop of people and people under them who make things that then they sign their name to, essentially, or that they sort of direct the process for. You know, that's, in essence, what's happening with some of Etsy. These crafts and people are becoming designers who then are going to have someone else manufacture goods for them. Um, and that's the big change. And, and people are freaking out about that, uh, or some people are freaking out about that in the handmade goods world. But I think it's sort of a natural development if you expect a site like this to grow. Otherwise, you lose those superstars who are probably generating a disproportionate amount of Etsy's sales, would be my guess. I mean, it's probably an 80 20 type of thing, right? I mean, so it's it, what's interesting is like, you know, you think about crafters trying to make a living with their craft. You know, you think Etsy would be perfect for those guys, but it turns out that a lot of them complain that Etsy has made it actually more difficult for them to make a living off of their craft. And I'll explain the two reasons that that's true. One of them is that 
you have people in China making the same kinds of things at much cheaper rates. So it's commoditized. A lot of these things are commoditized. And for that reason, people are being pushed to be more artistic, Felix, to be more individualistic. So you can't just get the price lowered in that sense. So So, so wait, the first reason, the first reason, let's just be clear, is that they weren't being particularly unique or Correct. Or, or artistic, and, and then they're like, oh, now it's hard for me to compete against someone in China. Also, knockoffs. That's another issue. People see a design on Etsy and then kind of rip it off. And um, what's the second reason? Um, the second reason is that people such as myself who just knit um, sort of neurotically <laughs> whenever I sit down to watch baseball or football, um, we... We don't actually try to make money off of it. There's plenty of people like myself who say, hey, you know, I made this. I don't really know who it's for. I'll sell it on Etsy. And they, they basically sell their goods for below cost. And it's, it's cut into the actual money that um, a, a sort of a professional crafter can make. So you're right, Felix, that there, is this, there are all sorts of purity issues actually here. But one of the purity issues is like the idea that somebody should be able to make a living off of this. And it seems like Etsy has in some moments made it actually more difficult for someone to do that, not, not easier. But they've kind of reversed that now. I mean, now by kind of being less pure, they're, they're finally saying, okay, make a living. So if you're willing to, for example, outsource a lot of your work, to, like, yeah. um, then it's possible for you to grow your business on Etsy. That's you see, true. What, one of the things which I find fascinating, because I come at this more from the arts world side of things, and of course, you know, everything which you've been saying, Kathy, has been implying this important distinction between artists on the one hand and crafters on the other, which, of course, there's a massive overlap between the two. And it's actually the overlap between the two which I find most interesting because what seems natural to many people is that the Internet should allow artists to disintermediate galleries and the artists should be able to come onto the Internet, find a platform, which might well be Etsy or might be something similar, and sell their art on that platform directly to um, collectors. And I've done this myself. I've actually bought art on Etsy from artists, and it's been wonderful, and it's been a great experience. Um, and I would love to think that Etsy is a opportunity, provides an opportunity for artists who don't necessarily have representation by the kind of galleries who appear at Art Basel to sell their work to a much larger audience than they might previously have had access to. But it's hard because really it's the galleries who add the value in this in this world, in, in the art world, that people don't want to buy art directly from artists precisely because of the reason that I was saying that you know they want the imprimatur of the gallery to say, well, there's some intrinsic value there or that it might go up in value over time or something like that. And so they feel like they don't want to just trust their own eye. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And I, I don't want to overstate the negative sides of Etsy. Like, I personally go onto Etsy and I look at art quilts, which are like really, really unique quilts that are sometimes, you know, up in um, folk museums, um, art folk museums. And I, you know, you can buy them there. And, you know, you, they often do actually say, yeah, this, this was in a museum and now it's mine again and we can buy it. And that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Etsy, other people want to go to Etsy and they want to buy relatively cheap Christmas presents for their friends. They want to say, hey, this was homemade on Etsy and I supported a good cause. And that goes back to the question of purity and imprimatur. So another a controversy around Etsy is that they, they're a B Corp 
and they have which means that they uh, as a as a company they aren't only just committed to making money but they're also committed to some kind of social good and one of the things that they push in their b corp nature is that they they try to make things local they try to make things good for the environment and so what you see is people claiming to have locally made handmade objects and then people dig into that and they figure out that it actually it's not local and it was made in China and assembled and then just shipped to California where it was sold. How much control does Etsy itself as the platform have over that kind of thing? Well, right. It's a platform. And platforms are modern beasts where they say, oh, well, we didn't know that. I mean, I think they do some fraud detection, but I don't think that, you know, it's kind of like Google does some fraud detection on YouTube, but they, they don't spend all their time thinking about whether something was stolen yeah, or not. more like Kickstarter or something like that, I think. Like, they're probably alerted. Well, Kickstarter's actually given up on screening every single project themselves yeah. before it appears. And I think Etsy, you know, is the same. I, I think I can understand how people who work and craft inexpensive neighborhoods in Vermont, say, you know, get aggrieved when they find something claiming to be from an expensive neighborhood in Vermont, but which actually comes from China. But on the other hand, I find it hard to blame the platform for that. Right. I'm not exactly blaming the platform. I'm just making a point that, you know, there's a purity issue and there's it's always there's being al- undercut. There's always purity. And by the way, you know, I mean, this is one of the reasons, and I'm just going to leave the whole art world thing behind with this, but one of the reasons why contemporary art is very hot right now, and especially art by living artists is very hot right now, is because you get less of a purity issue mm. that... Art by dead artists, which has changed hands a bunch of times, there's a big problem with fakes. You know, you can spend millions of dollars on on, on a fake work, which then turns out to be worth nothing. Whereas with art by living artists, you don't really have that problem because, you know, you can always just ask the artist, you know, is this real? And they'll say yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And by the way, I've never really understood that thing about... It turns out to be worthless after it's esteemed fake. I mean, if it well, fooled you, well, it's all—it's all about it's a brand of the artist, not about whether or not you like it. I guess it's not about yeah. whether you like it. Yeah, it's yeah. so interesting. They care about authorship. Have you ever seen F is for about, Fake? Or yeah, we're not—we're not going to talk about Orson Welles. We're going to talk about another <laughs> art collector, though. We're going to talk about Maurice Sendak, Jordan. Yeah, so Maurice Sendak, the famed children's book author who gave us Where the Wild Things Are, passed away in 2012. And there's been some controversy over the way his estate is being managed. The person in charge of it is uh, Lim Caponera, his former housekeeper and caretaker who was with him for 30 years. She started working for him when she was 19 years old. They became his confidant, incredibly trusted person in his life. And since uh, he has passed away, uh, she has set about the work of turning his former home in the woods of Connecticut into essentially a museum for him, a kind of a place people can come and visit. But in the process, she's also uh, pissed a lot of people off, namely a museum in Philadelphia where she withdrew about 10,000 works of art that uh, he had lent to them. It's all resulted in lawsuits um, and and a, a great deal of frustration on all parties' parts. However, there are these, I, I guess people are now taking digs at her because they're say, essentially saying this woman who did not go to college and really has no business experience is not qualified 
to manage this esteemed artist or author's estate. And I'm wondering, you know, if you guys think that's if there's any validity to that. I mean, to me, she has help from a lawyer and another business associate of Sendak's. I feel like having someone managing a state who really knew someone that intimately is probably good for it in the long term. But I'm curious if you guys can see an issue. Well, I mean, there's two different issues. There's the snobbism about, like, you know, she never went to college. And I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. But there's also... The question of what is the best way to run this estate and have it be run. And I think there I I have more sympathy. Morris Sendak donated, for instance, a large number of books to this um, library in Philadelphia. And the estate is now suing to get them back on like ridiculous grounds. Like these aren't books, they're children's books. So we can take them back and that kind of thing. (laughs) And she's trying to turn this little house in the middle of nowhere, which no one's going to be making massive pilgrimages to, into a museum. And what I'm seeing here is someone who clearly really loved this man, who knows his taste very well, who understands exactly what he was about, but who finds it hard to let go, in a sense, and wants to keep it all as was. And that's not the best way for an estate to be run. On the other hand, though, apparently this was his wish, that his house become the study center. Here's what I think. (laughs) You know, seriously, I I read this stuff, and I just, I'm missing part of my brain, Um, which is that, you know, this guy, he was a really weird kind of strange old man, and then this woman was taking care of him and obviously loved him, and and now she's a strange old woman. And she, and it's like the, the amount of influence that his dying wishes had on the the current situation. It just it's kind of makes me want to have a stronger estate tax. You know, I just, <laughs> and it's. It, yeah. And, and this is it goes back to the whole idea of perpetuity is people and what we were talking about in the philanthropy issue of yes. people trying to control their belongings from beyond the grave. And. We don't want that. That's a bad thing. Exactly. Even though we love this guy because he wrote beautiful children's books that made us, you know, inspired us. I still, it still goes back to this, that he is, you know, is trying to control something when he's not even alive. And he's doing it through this woman who obviously loves him. But, you know, at the same time, it is influence, it's control and it's power. And you're like, well, why does this even happen? I, you know, I don't know if I entirely buy the idea that nobody will go to this museum. I mean, people do visit uh, places that are sort of out there in the country, you know, falling water, places like that, which aren't exactly, you know, right in the middle of a city. So I, I do feel like if there is this weird old house dedicated to Mercendak, it might actually attract some crowd. It might not be as democratic and accessible as it would be if there was a museum in the middle of Philadelphia that held all of his work. But the lawsuits are probably a problem. But the idea that she has this slightly quixotic goal to, to create the shrine to him in the middle of the woods doesn't necessarily. Well, it's interesting. Let's, I want anyway. to, Felix, I want to hear about the <laughs> yes. matching. I like quirk. Anyway. Okay. Let's move on to the grand reveal. But, of course, we need you guys have numbers too, Yes, right? we do. We do. So, Jordan, what's yours? My number is $8,500, which is the monthly base pay at Dropbox, a uh, cloud startup, for a software development internship. That's a lot of money. It comes out to about $102,000 a year uh, if you were to multiply it out. Um, and the number comes from a big list that was uh, essentially put together by the New York Observer, Betabeat, um, uh, where they just collected a mass number of these Silicon Valley internship salaries, which 
have sort of been becoming public and sort of ticking off a few people and a few writers who are saying these are exorbitant and these are absurd. And I just want to take a moment to say, I think it's actually a very good thing that Silicon Valley pays its interns essentially like it pays its actual full-time employees. I think that of all the labor practices that you could complain about in Silicon Valley... Wait, who who exactly is complaining about it? There was a writer at the Daily Beast, for instance, who just went on a tirade. Actually, I I was one of the people targeted and said tirade because I had defended these salaries, but about how essentially if these if Silicon Valley companies weren't hiring all of their contract employees who do things like, you know, take care of the grounds and serve food in the cafeteria first as full-time workers, then they shouldn't be paying their interns this because it's a sign of income inequality in the Valley. I think that's a bit much. I think if you're going to pay your interns like full-time employees, we should all be glad about that. Okay. Uh, Kathy? Well, the, uh, my number is 550. And that is the minimum number of police killings during 2007 to 2012 that were missing from the national FBI tally. Um, so Rob Berry from the Wall Street Journal um, looked into how police reportings of, of police killings are reported. Um, and it turns out the FBI asks all the police departments, local police departments, to tell them at the end of each year what happened. And it turns out that the police departments um, do not necessarily tell them all, all about all of the killings. And, of course, this... Um, I brought up because of the Eric Garner situation and, you know, the Ferguson situation from last week. It's a big deal here in New York City. Um, There's lots of protests and it's a really interesting moment um, for the city and for the country, I think. And I was I was actually kind of tempted to ask you, Felix, whether there were any protests outside the the art show down in Miami, because it's kind of an extreme example of this sort of income inequality and also what the racial makeup is of the people attending the the... Wait, wait, what exactly is the connection between cops killing people and income inequality? Well, there's racial inequality, there's income inequality, there's all sorts of inequalities that I think are um, coming to a head. And I think when you talk about a, a super concentration of, of money, if I were organizing a protest in, in Miami that I might target that art show. I'm just asking. I haven't seen any protests. I, I still don't quite understand what this has to do with cop killers, but I do think that we should know how many people get killed by cops. I mean, we're in a world where American cops kill more people per year than British cops kill per century. And I don't understand why that would be. But in any case, I'm going to start reading a list now. This is my my number is coming, people, I promise you. But the first little sub number I'm going to give you is 114. Because you guys, there are 114 of you who donated money to Doctors Without Borders, as you almost certainly know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I promised to match the donations that you gave to Doctors Without Borders before December the 2nd, um, giving Tuesday. And Van Brenner, Kiara McGovern, Enrique Anchondo, Joshua Booth, Andrew Bowling, Bill Quirk, Kate Morovich, Thomas Lumley, Don Rawlins, Ronald Felton, Kim Andreski, Chris Walsh, Rob Farnham, Justin Elliott, Jesse Isinger, who was on the show, Sean Mintz, Caroline Dunn, Mark Plotz, Henry Sherrod, Devin Carter, Michelle McNelly, Elizabeth Bancroft, Bob Morrill, Glenn Jackson, Jenna Cabawat. Salman Mukal, David Hagen, Kathleen Lockhart, Andrew Rohrkamper, George Yoshikawa, Ross Prorokowski, Lauren Hochstein, Suzanne Horst, Helen Lazia, Martha Goodnow, Carter Lusher, Abraham Epton, Jamie Harris, Michael Yoshitaka Erlewine, Daniel Weisbath, Jen Olijink, Richard Worthington, Vincent Boylan, Leah Swetnan, Jesse Lansner, 
Um, David Fry, Marsha Aoki, Carl Ebeling, Brad Acard, Brent Marmo, Mark Monsky, Jim Foster, Alan Farrell, Jane Louise Terrington. I'm going to keep on going here because you guys are all really, really awesome. Robin Allen and John Gordon, Bo Chow, Lucy Fournier, Jörg Hasselmeyer, Miguel Cardo, Chuck Christensen, Laura Anderson, James Cole, James Mitchell, Lee Everly, Josh Silverman, Josh and Martha Higgins, Levi Turner... Eileen Libby, Brian Haller, Jim Demang, Anders Hallen, and we all got these emails. They were just coming in and coming in and coming in over the past like two or three weeks. Clisson Rexford, Alexander Meager, Eli Sprecher, Rika Feng, Rob Neal, Joy Coakley, Scott Henry, Dennis Mawerta, Yumi Peterson, Christopher Capuzzi, Neil Thanader. Alison Ruddock, Dan Hendricks, Antoine McNara, Gabrielle Romeo, Thomas and Patricia Courteau, Mark Farley, Mark Rowe, Eileen Mitchell, Sean McNeil, David Walker, David Sears, Cara Lang- Laney, oh, and Stan Alcorn, our very own producer, threw in 50 bucks. Thank you, Stan. Ben Poulos, Michael Tucker, Emir Shani, Ann Chavez, Victoria Hess, Kirk McKinney, Corey Ewing, Jesse Abelson, who I'm going to come back to, um, Karen Kaplan. Rich Megahees, Ben Heilweil, I don't even know how I'm pronouncing these things anymore, Sandeep and Nisha Mangaraj, Eddie Kohler, Stephanie Sabatini, Michelle Hines, James Somerville, Daniel Whalen, and Ira Pfeiffer. Yes, I am matching your donation, Ira, even though the email came in a bit late because your donation was made on Tuesday, December the 2nd. An amazing list of pe- amazing people. Thank you all so much. You donated in dollars, you donated in euros, in Canadian dollars, in Australian dollars, in pounds, in Swedish krona, in Microsoft stock. And if you remember the last time we recorded this show, the total was just over $4,000. And that was amazing. And I reckoned that the total being pledged would probably then, you know, there would be trickle in stuff. um, And it would probably reach about $5,000, you know, $5,000, you know, but that would be what, 50 people at $100 each, 100 people at $50 each. In fact, the median amount that you gave, this is fantastic, is $100, is exactly $100. Um, so that is amazing in and of itself. But what's even, oh, 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 and I also need to mention that one last person, Matthew Bishop, who um, writes for The Economist and who I tweaked on Twitter and promised to match also um, up to $5,000. He's donating $5,000. It's just astonishing because what happened is it just wound up snowballing. And just like a couple days, one day before the end of the deadline, December 2nd, we got this email from Jesse Abelson who said, I listened to your podcast. It was inspiring and I have been inspired to donate to Dogs Without Borders from my family foundation that I run and he donated get this $40,000. Woo! Yeehaw. Wow. So what all of this means is that we have the median amount of $100 the mean amount was 520 thanks to Mr. Abelson. I decided that although I am a wealthy man I I can't match the Abelson Family Foundation in full, I have multiplied the median amount by five. So I am matching up to 
$500 for everyone who matched, even Jesse Abelson. And so what that means is that my donation here is $19,724.66. And oh, the grand my God. total, which we have raised for Doctors Without Borders, is... Drum roll. $90,946.90. That is incredible. Almost $91,000 we have managed to put together for Doctors Without Borders and is just the best thing I've done all year. I'm so happy about that. And you guys did it. You guys are just the best. Thank you, guys. Yes. Well done. Well done, all of you. And don't obviously stop giving to wonderful people, but thank you for this. It was just like the best thing. It's the power of podcasts. We we really appreciate it. Um, in any case, on that happy $91,000 note, that is it for us this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. Um, do subscribe to the show. Uh, you can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review. Write to us the email address remains the same slate money at slate.com um, all of your comments and complaints about how I spent far too much time reading off lists of names we will listen to them when we won't do it again at least not until next time we do a matching gift show which I don't know if that's ever going to happen the producer for slate money this week was the great Stan Alcorn the executive producer of all of slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers somewhere in there in the mix is Joel Meyer there are lots of people making great podcasts at Slate. In any case, for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weisman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.